Deion Sanders at Colorado. Big, splashy hire, a lot of flash. Is that a threat to Oregon? Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. Please continue to like, comment, subscribe wherever you are listening to or watching this show right now. Thank you to everybody who has done so already. Today's episode brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs, which can help you hire qualified candidates more efficiently by matching open roles with people who have the skills, values, and experiences to help you achieve your 2023 goals. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash locked on college terms and conditions apply. Not too many terms and conditions that I lay out when going into the mailbag, which is chock full of fantastic questions that I'm planning to to get to either this week or in upcoming shows, depending on when the news breaks and whatnot. But I appreciate all of you sending questions in. Helps me out tremendously. And I love having you guide the show. And you come up with great questions as well because you guys rock. Evan Tucker, my guy, who I met back in November in Eugene at Matthew Knight Arena, a place we'll be talking about later on the show. With Deion Sanders being brought into Colorado, how long until you think they start making some noise in the Pac-12? By the way, speaking of Deion Sanders, speaking of Colorado, it does not appear that they're in the running for Nicholas Harbor. Oregon, on the other hand, hmm, hmm, very much in the running. For Nicholas Harbor. Looked like he was having a good time with Dan Lanning at the basketball game. He was in the student section. Just throwing that out there. But we're here to talk at this point in time about Coach Prime, who already presents a threat in one sense to Oregon, and that is on the recruiting trail for high-profile recruits. You cannot ignore Deion Sanders. I don't care if you want to, I talk about him frequently over on Locked On Pac-12. You go scroll through some of the comments over there. Dion is either really popular or really not. There's not a lot of in-between. I am in the in-between phase. That that that's kind of I'm I'm somewhere in the middle, but everybody else, you're either all the way over here or all the way over here. Just like America. How about that? So I, I feel like with, with Deion Sanders, the biggest thing to remember is he is going to go after high-profile recruits. Now, whether or not they come from the same place as Oregon, whether or not they're diving into the same area, that kind of remains to be seen. The high-profile players that he's gone after in this 2023 cycle, whether it's via the portal or or the prep ranks, Cormani McLean, I think, is the most notable because he had been verbally committed to Miami for a long time. We know what Mario's capable of as a recruiter, and Dion just came in and said, hey, you want to come to Colorado? And Cormani said, yeah, sure. I'd love to go to Colorado. I'm going to go be a buff. But the other high-profile recruits he's brought in, Shadur Sanders, his son, and Travis Hunter were already with him at Jackson State. There's some other notable ones as well, but I think it's pretty clear that there is going to come a time, and it's crazy to say this because of what the buffs have been on the field and on the recruiting trail, and their brand is just so, so tarnished from what it was back in the 90s. 
in early 2000s when Oregon was beating them in the Fiesta Bowl. Um, just had to throw that in there. There will come a time, whether it's 2023, probably more like 2024 and beyond, where Oregon is going to go after a mid to high four star or a five star recruit and Colorado is going to be in the mix and Colorado is going to beat out Oregon. Crazy thing to say, I don't know. 365 days ago, you don't even have to go back that far. You could go back 200 days. You could go back, I think, just 100 days before he was announced as Colorado's next head football coach. And you'd say, yeah, no, Colorado can't beat out Oregon for recruits, but that's possible. Now, Coach Prime's recruiting footprint and his potentially or potential future desires in the coaching sphere might cater him to go more heavily towards Florida. That's where McLean comes from. But Colorado, pretty close geographical proximity to Texas. They've got ties going back to their time uh, in, in the Big 12 in that state. And Oregon has made it very clear with their staff, Dan Lanning, Tosh Lupoy, Will Stein now coming over from UTSA, that recruiting out of the Lone Star State is going to continue to be a priority, as it should be. But I think as Coach Prime continues to settle in in Boulder, he will go after those sorts of players, especially on the defensive side of the ball. I think that's where you'll see a lot of those recruiting battles start to come into play. I think Oregon and Colorado are going to go after the same sorts of guys in the defensive backfield. And recruiting against Coach Prime for high-profile defensive backs, I love Dan Lanning and what he's doing defensively, but you can't beat Coach Prime. It is a really, really tough sell. And it will only get more difficult if Colorado starts to win. Their over-under in Vegas, even with all the transfers, is still at four and a half because that roster was just so bad in 2022. But if they continue to get better, if they can be a perennial six to eight win team even with him at the helm, that is going to be a major player on, on the recruiting front. And I think just in the short term, there's going to come a time, the 2023 cycles, you know, basically wrapping up uh, for, for our every notable recruit, either this week or sometime next week, whenever guys are, are, are planning to commit. But once the 2024 recruiting cycle and that battle really starts to heat up, Deion Sanders is going to be in the mix. And I think that's the biggest area where he presents a, a challenge for the Ducks. Now, on the field, I think it's an unknown. I, I really think it's an unknown right now. And the Dion fans who are over on, on my Pac-12 channel talking all about how, man, Dion's only ever known winning. That's all he does. He just wins. He just does this, that, and the other thing. I'm not trying to knock what he did at Jackson State. I'm just pointing out that what he did over there is a lot different than when he is about to encounter in Colorado. Doesn't mean he can't make them into a winning program. And in fact, going forward, if you're talking about health of the Pac-12, strength of the conference, it'd probably be best for the league if Coach Prime not just stayed at Colorado, but made them into a conference contender. Once USC and UCLA depart, you've got a void. And let's say the Pac-12, my guess is they're going to add San Diego State and SMU. Let's say they do that to remain at 12 teams for 2024 and beyond you need some torch-carrying programs. Oregon is certainly one of them. Washington is definitely another. But then after that, you'd like Stanford to get back up to the top if you're George Klyovkov, our commissioner. 
that doesn't seem like it's going to happen overnight. Colorado, on the other hand, a lot easier to get players there. And with Coach Prime at the helm, Colorado has a great history. They've got, first of all, they have a beautiful stadium. They have great fans. And if they can become, they're, they're a solid TV draw. And I think Coach Prime increases their value from a TV perspective. So I think that from the conference view, the conference's view, Coach Prime being really good would be really, really good for the league. Now, can they challenge Oregon? Like this year, first conference game is against Coach Prime at Autzen Stadium. I expect Oregon to win big. I, I, I do, and it's because of the challenge that Coach Prime is facing. I'll elaborate more on after I tell you about my friends at FanDuel. We're really excited about our new sports betting partner for Locked On because they're the number one sports book in America. If you're new to FanDuel, that's even better. They have so many great features that make betting on sports fun and easy. Download the FanDuel app so you can bet Super Bowl 57 with a no sweat first bet. You'll get up to $3,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. FanDuel lets you bet on everything from the money line to point spreads to who will score a touchdown. You can get all of your gambling fix for the Super Bowl matchup between the Eagles and the Chiefs. I like the Chiefs, by the way. Best of all, you can get your winnings paid instantly with FanDuel. So don't mess around. Join FanDuel today at FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to claim your no-sweat first bet on Super Bowl 57. That's FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. I think that Coach Prime still has some proving to do on the schematical front. Here's what he showed at Jackson State. He's a culture guy, he's a recruiting guy, and he runs a tight ship. And he knew how to win football games there. But at Jackson State, he recruited at a level and brought in a caliber of athlete that that school had never seen before. And he is now bringing in the sorts of players that have seldom passed through Boulder, Colorado over the last decade and change. But he's not going up against other programs who can't bring in blue chip prospects. He's going to go up against Oregon, against Washington, against great schematical coaches like Jonathan Smith at Oregon State or Kyle Whittingham at Utah. That, that's the challenge and why there is still an unknown element for what sort of player can Colorado become in the Pac-12. And it's a perfectly fair question to ask. Because, yes, he clearly knows what he's doing at some level as a head coach. But it is a completely different challenge when you are not just out-talenting the team on the other side. I mean, when Mario Cristobal was at Oregon, that's basically how they won. was <laughs> like sometimes you looked up and went, man, don't know if that was the best game management or the best game plan or play calling or anything like that. But at the end of the day, yeah, Oregon just had better players sometimes. Go look at that 2019 team. Loaded. Kayvon Thibodeau, true freshman. Justin Herbert, a senior. Panay Sewell was on that team. Javon Holland. Diamador Lenore. Thomas Graham. Like, just keep going down the list. Troy Dye was on that team. They, they just looked up at one point in time and said, well, you know, in these crucial situations, eh, Oregon's just got better players. And so th that is not an easy way to win at a high level. And even if that's, you know, how Colorado ends up winning games one day, is they just out-recruit everybody. Number one, I have no fears about them out-recruiting Oregon. They could 
maybe get to that level or close to it, but I don't worry about them suddenly surpassing Oregon on the talent front. But let's say once the LA schools leave, the two best recruiting powers in the Pac-12 are Oregon and Colorado, followed by like, you know, Washington, Utah, and, and Stanford maybe. There's not going to come a point in time where you look and go, man, Colorado's just got more talent than Oregon. No, that, that should never be a problem. I have no reservations, no concerns about that being a problem. Now, where the challenge can come with Coach Prime at Colorado is if you raise the talent level, they're going to cease to be a team that you will beat 49 to 10 on the road. That's what they will no longer be. And I think he is, at this point in time, doing more than a sufficient job to indicate he's going to be able to build them into that. At the very least... I would expect by year two or three, they're a six to eight win team every year. Whether or not he stays at Colorado, entirely different conversation. But I don't worry about them ever out-talenting Oregon. I think they could rise closer to the level. I, I think they could get maybe close to being on par with the Ducks roster, but I don't worry about them surpassing at that point in time. But very interesting question from uh, my guy, Evan, there. Speaking of... Recruiting and players, uh, Mateo Uyunglele. We'll be talking about it a couple times, I think, this week on on the show, perhaps for various reasons. Eric Lammerman asks via the YouTube comments, and if you didn't know, you might be new to the show. In which case, welcome. It's great to have you here. YouTube comments, Twitter at smalls underscore fifty five or at locked on ducks. You can DM me a question, tweet me a question, hop in the YouTube comments, whatever. Ask away. I will always get to it. I've got a bunch written down right now that, that I'll be getting to, and I'm stoked about that because I love, love answering you guys' questions, and it makes me feel good that you want some insight on, from me on that front. So thank you. Eric Lammerman asks, coming out of high school, Kayvon Thibodeau, he was pretty good, weighed 235 pounds, whereas Mateo is currently listed at 265. I remember being a bit concerned during his true freshman year that Thibodeau wasn't big enough yet to play edge at the Power 5 level. I don't have that same concern about Uyunglele. To what extent would you agree with the idea that, although he lacks Thibodeau's crazy twitch, Uyunglele might be more ready to contribute from day one? Perhaps technique isn't quite as important for an edge player that is 30 pounds bigger or stronger. This, This is a really, really interesting question. And when you look at what Kayvon Thibodeau did in his true freshman year, by the end of the year, he'd put on a little bit more weight. He developed his pass rush moves more sufficiently than when he came out of college or came out of high school, rather, where he could just bull rush kids because he was the best athlete on the field. Mateo is going to have to make that same sort of leap. But early in that 2019 season, I mentioned this an episode or two ago, Thibodeau was not the number one edge player who was just in on every available snap until he got tired. By the end of the year, that's what he was. And and I think Waite certainly could have played a component of that because at 265 or 250, 265, I think you have a better propensity to hold up in running situations. And Thibodeau, when he first started seeing snaps for the Ducks at the Power 5 level, It was almost exclusively to go get after the quarterback because that's what he was ready-made to do. But I agree with your point that he was a little bit bigger as the year, or he got bigger as the year went on, and he was a little bit more nimble. So that's what he was kind of specialized to do from a body type and composition standpoint. I don't think he necessarily 
had to in order to do that. I think it was as much development as it was putting on the weight, which certainly didn't hurt. I mean, he didn't do that by accident. He came in, uh, Eric said 235 and he was, you know, 250 or so by the time he, he left 250, 260, whatever it was. I think with Mateo, what you could have is a more well-rounded player at this point in time who can defend both the run and the pass. Whereas Thibodeau was kind of little bit leaner at that position and not bull rushing guys or you know holding up against the run the way he did a lot as his career went went on and on but with Mateo is he ready to contribute right away because he's bigger potentially I I think what you know and this is an assessment he's one of the early enrollees for the Ducks so you know hopefully we'll, we'll get some insight on this once spring football rolls around what Dan Lanning and his staff have to determine with Mateo is how prepared he is to start playing right away versus what you want him to become. Because when you take the field, now thankfully Oregon starts on September 2nd with Portland State rather than with Georgia, so he'll certainly see a bunch of action in that game. And maybe he is completely game ready. But I think what that bigger weight really indicates is He's not going to need to put on weight in order to have a sufficiently well-rounded game to be an every-down edge player. Now, that doesn't mean automatically, even as a highly rated recruit, that he's going to be ready to start right away, that he is good enough against the run. It just means that that component is not lacking. Like He has the size to slide in and start opposite Jordan Birch on day one. I think more likely... What, what you're going to see is you have Birch start at one edge spot and at the other side, it's probably Mace Funa and then Mateo is right there. And look, they may feel that, that he's more ready than that. And if Oregon's defense takes the field on September 2nd and the first snap, I can't wait for that first snap. I really, I really, really can't because it'll tell us so much about everything we're about to talk about for uh, you, you know the remaining seven months. One down, seven to go. If we take the field defensively against Portland State, even though it's an FCS opponent, and your two starting edge players are Jordan Birch and Mateo, that means the staff evaluated him and said, yep, that guy's ready right now, and his ceiling could be as high as we hope it is going to be. But I think it's a fascinating thing to monitor as spring football kind of goes along. We should get a glimpse of him barring an injury or anything at the spring game, but... You know, the, the latter part of your question here, perhaps technique isn't quite as important for an edge player that is 30 pounds bigger or stronger. I, I don't subscribe to that particular mindset. I think that no matter what your weight is, right, I don't think it's a, it's definitely not a hindrance for him as he tries to get on the field. But you still have to understand your rush assignments. You have to understand your gap assignments. You have to be able to understand when you're dropping into coverage or you know, a, a whole host of other things that go into playing literally any defensive position, whether that's, you know, defensive end, defensive lineman, linebacker. Like there are so many things that most people really don't think about because there are just so many details. And it's why football is such a, a big, expansive and fun sport to cover because there's just so much to it all the time. There's so many moving parts and pieces to every single play. So I, I think the biggest thing that will determine whether or not he's going to play a lot early in the season or maybe just a little 
is as much physically not 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 physically but technique wise can he develop an array of moves to shed a run blocker to seal the edge or to get to the quarterback and get around a tackle i, I think that'll be determined as much or as determinative if that's even a word as whether or not he's able to kind of pick up all the little nuances of playing uh, the the edge position at, at the college level. But great question, Eric. And as always, everybody, keep them coming. And if you ask me one, trust me, I did not. For, I don't forget questions. I've never once had a question sent in that I didn't get to. But uh, final thing to talk about here today on the show. I may be just a sucker for college basketball. I could. I, I could be, that might be what I am. And I'm not so much of a sucker that I'm ignoring reality here or what I have seen all season long, but Oregon basketball beat Colorado and Utah two games in a row. Reminds me of a funny scene from a show that probably none of you have seen from my childhood called Chowder that, uh, I'm going to text my brother about that. He'll get a kick out of it. But anyway, so it was nice to see them string together back-to-back good performances against good teams, by the way. Now, they have a long ways to go. But that's two teams that are at or near the top half of the Pac-12. It's encouraging that they were able to play well in consecutive outings that they were able to bounce back after that horrific Stanford loss. Oregon basketball would honestly be fine if they would just stop losing to bad teams. They're sitting at 12 and 9 right now. 12 or 13, 13 and 9. Sorry, they're 13 and 9 right now. If they would just not lose to UC Irvine, to Utah Valley, to Stanford, ASU at, at home, ASU is at least a respectable team. But just look at those three games. If you just won those three games in which you were a big favorite or should have been a big favorite or all those should have been wins, imagine if this team was sitting at 16-6. and six. They're probably squarely inside the bubble for the field of 68. However, this is a massive week for the Ducks. Massive. You have nine games left. Their net ranking is actually 61st as I record this show on Sunday night. They are not projected as a, well, the new bracketology hasn't come out yet, so we can take a look at that as as it unfolds and whatnot. But you've got Arizona and Arizona State down in the desert this week. A couple of big opportunities for wins. You, you just need one. You don't need both. If you got Arizona again, that would be great. But if you don't beat Arizona on Thursday, game's on ESPN. I hope it'll be Dave Pash, Bill Walton on the call. Then you got to beat Arizona State. And if you can get one, you're doing fine. They've got nine games left. If they can go 6-3, and three, they'd finish the year at 19-12, at 12, make some noise, get to like the semifinals of the Pac-12 tournament maybe. Add another good win in there. I think an at-large is possible. I'm not going to say likely because it probably isn't. But possible, yes, it is. On the women's side, tough loss to Stanford. Guards really struggled on Sunday. Stanford is also, checks notes, really, really good. 
They're projected at the moment as a seven seed. No concerns about them getting into the tournament. For Kelly Graves' team, it's going to be about playing hot once March rolls around. That is going to be the most important thing for the Ducks. And look, depth has been an issue this year. And we'll see how deep of a run they could make in the tournament. But last year they were one and done. I don't expect that to be the case whatsoever. I think this Oregon team on the women's side has got the potential to get to the Sweet 16, maybe Elite Eight. But look, it's March Madness. We've seen 11 seeds, 12 seeds go to the Final Four. I think 11 11 seed is the highest we've ever seen go to the Final Four. Anything could happen. You just got to get in, be playing some good basketball. We're going to continue to follow basketball here on the show. You know why? Because I love basketball. I know many of you do. And March is right around the corner. Appreciate everyone listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day. And go Ducks.